0: You know, I was having a conversation with a couple uh, grandparents uh, a, f- a few weeks ago, and these these grandparents they were just telling me through tears that not one but two of their uh, grandchildren um, were claiming to be transgender. And, and as as they were just sharing this, they they were lamenting the fact that their that the, that their children were were raised in the church, and then they were supporting this, they were encouraging this, and. Um, and at the same time, they felt like if they, they would try to speak into it, that any time they really tried to just be honest about how they felt in a loving kind of way, that if they didn't just support it, that they were almost, like, ostracized and excluded, and so they, they didn't really feel like they had much of a voice. And, and as they're just sharing this story and sharing with some others the story, one of the things they've realized is that their story's not really all that unique, that a lot of families out there can identify with, with that and relate to that, in one way or another. Um, they were saying that their their prayer now, since they don't feel like they have much of a voice, is that God would just put godly classmates in, in their classes who would speak the truth to them, and who, who would love them, but at the same time speak God's truth to them. Um, and, and as the conversation kept going, they, they also began just asking like, how are we supposed to live in this culture, you know? And, and what do you make of a, of a government that supports, and not just supports, but encourages and celebrates transgenderism and abortion and things like that? Like, what do you do with that? And essentially, they were asking the question that we're going to ask this morning. How do you live in between God and Caesar? As it turns out, Paul actually has a lot to say about that. So let's check it out. Romans 13. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Okay, so Paul is writing this during the time of Rome. And when he's writing this, Nero is in charge of Rome. And if you know anything about Nero, he was a really wicked emperor, okay? Uh, he was, he was immoral in just a host of ways. He celebrated relationships with both men and women. He killed his mother. He killed his first wife. He killed his second wife while she was pregnant. He persecuted Christians. There was a big fire that broke out in Rome. He blamed it on the Christians just to expedite their persecution. Um, idolatry, adultery, pedophilia. It was all rampant throughout first century Rome. It was, a, it was an evil place. It was a nasty place. And it's in this context that Paul is writing about how we are to relate to our government. And it's, it's interesting, his thesis and what he's really banking this on stems out of Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, Paul addresses the persecution of the Christians. He does several times in that chapter. And what he ultimately says in Romans chapter 12 is this, overcome evil with good. And so based on that, okay, you overcome evil with good. Now here's what that looks like as a citizen to your government. You overcome evil with good. And so there's this goodness that ought to be at the heart of the the believer. The first command in this passage that we're getting, it's a command, it's not a suggestion, is for the Christians to subject themselves to the governing authorities because there's no authority except the authority which God has established. And Uh, right off the bat, Paul is saying to the uh, Romans at that time that, hey, Nero has been established by God. He's been ordained by God. He's, well, maybe it's just talking about government, that God's ordained government. Well, when you go back in Romans, you see that, no, God ordained Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh was pretty evil. You you look elsewhere in scripture, God ordained Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was a pretty evil guy. You look for the Israelites, They're complaining that they're ruled by the judges. And so what does God do? Well, he gives them the desires of their heart. He ordains Saul as king of Israel. So we see throughout Scripture that God ordains evil kings, and that he's done this. And so we re-obey government regardless of government's response to the gospel. Why? Because a moral government... A Christian government, a good government, is not necessary for a thriving church, right? A moral culture is not necessary for a thriving church. The church grew exponentially during the first century in Rome, during the second century in Rome, during the third century in Rome. It just took off. I mean, by the end of the first century, you realize that there was about 15,000 Christians. Now, it's something, but when you consider the vastness of the Roman Empire... 15,000 Christians is not all that much. By the end of the third century, you have over 2 million Christians in the Roman Empire during a time when Christians are being persecuted and treated terribly. Why? Because they were focused on their mission to make disciples because the church understood that her primary responsibility is not to battle cultural immorality, but to demonstrate purity and fidelity to god and his gospel in the face of cultural immorality the church that is those who have been saved by grace through faith in jesus christ who are adopted into the family of god we're set apart to be a lighthouse okay you know what a lighthouse doesn't do a lighthouse never calms a storm you know there's never like whoa the lighthouse did such an amazing job yesterday like stilled the seas it was incredible Or the lighthouse. Wow, did you see what it did? It just turned the hurricane around. It went back out to sea. That's a really cool lighthouse. No, no, no. a lighthouse doesn't do that. What does a lighthouse do? It tells people where to go during the storm, right? It shines brightest when the storm is present and says, here's where you go. Here's where safety is. Here's where a firm foundation is. Here's where you can be safe. That's what a lighthouse does. As believers, We're called to tell people in the face of cultural immorality, here's where you go during the storm, that this is the place of truth, this is the firm foundation, this is where you go, namely to Jesus Christ, this this is who we go to, this is who we run to, and it's not just cultural storms, right, it is that, but it's also personal storms. We all have personal storms. We all have things that we go through in life. Life is full of tribulation, sadness, and difficulty. And and there's calls during personal storms that here's where we go. It's storms of any kind, that we're to be lighthouses who tell people where to go during the storm. You know, we're never told to, hey, depend on God, and at the same time, just like pin your hopes on reversing the cultural trends. The moment that we believe that, and the focus becomes on cultural trends, what happens is we lose our primary mission to make disciples. That's the primary mission of the church, is to make disciples. In fact, do you know when the church suffered the most? Well, let me just tell you, when the church suffered the most, on the heels of the third century, when the church is exploding, and by the end of the third, third century, you have over two million Christians, in the 4th century, what happens is, at the very beginning, the Emperor Constantine, he sees that now Christianity is the dominant religion of the day, and so he legalizes Christianity. By the end of the 4th century, Christianity was so prevalent in Rome that Christianity was not only legalized, then Christianity became the state-run religion. So now, in order to take part in like greater public life, You had to be baptized. You had to attend a church, be a member of a church, and this type of thing. And perhaps the biggest tragedy of all is that during this time, what happened was there was a shift in the way people thought about church. Church no longer was who we were. It became the place you went. And so language about church shifted to, hey, are you going to church? Did you go to church? And that kind of thinking. Instead of, hey, church is who we are. Sadly, this type of thinking still persists in the church today. That a lot of people, they think in terms of going to church instead of being the church because they don't understand who the church is. And it's a people, it's not a building. And so you have all this taking place. And this is the storm that was happening. And yes, it was a storm. And, and one of the church leaders who stood up at this time to, to, because he saw what was taking place in the church, because it was not just legalized, but now it was state-run, Augustine of Hippo, he said this, he reminded the church that the city of man will one one day be destroyed as God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and that the city of God will last forever. So in the meantime, in the here and now, you give your lives to the city of God, which will endure forever. And so this raised another question. Okay, if we're going to give our lives to the city of heaven, which lasts forever, does that mean we can just kind of like pull away from the culture that we see today and just maybe like build a monastery somewhere, and so all these monasteries start popping up because we're just going to remove ourselves from the broader culture? No. Why? Because we are in the world, but not of the world. Yes, we're citizens of heaven, but we're ambassadors of Jesus Christ here on earth. So we go and we interact with people. Now, are there times when you disobey government? Yeah, there are. I mean, when, when government gives a law that violates the law of God, yes, you disobey. I and mean, you, you see that throughout the scriptures. I give you several examples, right? In Exodus, uh, there's an edict that goes out. You've got to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. And what do the Hebrew midwives do? They say, no way, we can't obey that. Why? Because it violates the law of God. We just studied through the book of Esther, and the edict goes out. Hey, everybody's got to bow down and worship Haman. And Mordecai says, I can't do that because why? It violates the law of God. You jump to the New Testament, you got in the book of Acts, you got uh, Peter and John and uh, later Paul, and the edict goes out, hey, you got to keep quiet. Don't say anything about God and the gospel. They say, We can't do that. We got to share. Why? Because not to share violates the law of God. I think all those cases are helpful to look at. I think perhaps the most helpful case to look at might be Daniel. If you're familiar with Daniel's story, he was taken as an exile into Babylon when he was a teenager. And as a teenager, Babylon, they had the the thinking of the day was, hey, we're going to take the best and the brightest from the places that we conquer, and we're going to indoctrinate them and make them the best and the brightest Babylonians. And so, if, if you were entering into Babylon at that time from any other co- country, you would have been amazed by the sights of Babylon. Several wonders of the ancient world occurred in Babylon. It was far more impressive than anything than da- that Daniel would have seen in Israel. And so as he's brought into Babylon one of the things that was happened is is hey look how awesome this is we got everything it's so incredible and here eat the king's meat and drink the king's wine oh it tastes so good and the wine is so delicious you'll love it and what does Daniel say he said no I can't eat the king's meat why because a lot of the king's meat was from animals that were unclean and at the time violated the law of God so I can't do that and I can't drink the king's wine why because the wine had been offered to idols before it was offered to a king. It violates the law of God. I can't do that. At the same time that he's saying no to this, as he's being indoctrinated, one of the, one of the things that they did at the time was they give anyone who they're bringing in a new name. So Daniel is given the name Beltshazzar, okay? Daniel means God is my judge or God is my ruler. Belshazzar means... Baal's prince, all right? So every time Daniel hears his new name, Belshazzar, he's just being subtly reminded that, hey, your God is not so big, not so strong, not so powerful, but Baal, look at all of this. He is strong. He is mighty. He's in charge of all of this, and you are his prince. How honored are you, right? Do you see the indoctrination here? But you know what you never read in the book of Daniel? That Daniel refuses the name. Why? Because there's no laws of God that say, okay, you can have this name, but you can't have this name. So he refuses the king's meat. He refuses the king's wine. But you look at this name, you say, how offensive is this? That he has a name that honors the one true God, and now he's given this name that honors a false God. But he doesn't refuse it because it it doesn't violate a law of God as offensive as the name might be. You know, when I travel over to Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone's a primarily Muslim country, and so um, the the most popular name over there, by far, is Muhammad. You will meet, it, most of the men you meet in that country, in fact, in fact, are Muhammad. You can walk up to anybody, and if you just say, hey, Muhammad, you've got a decent chance of being right. Okay, that's how prevalent the name is over there. And so, in the church, uh, the when you when you meet uh, a former Muslim who's now a believer I always think it's so cool because you'll meet a guy his name is Muhammad but instead of uh, worshiping the false prophet now he worships the one true God and I just think even in the name there's the story of redemption now a lot of the guys though when they do become believers they want a new name because they don't want it they don't want to be named after the false prophet anymore they give me the name Daniel and so Daniel's actually a popular name over there too but amongst Christians um, but I think, even looking at the story of, of Daniel, and he's given this name Beltshazzar, here's, na- here's the guy who has the name of this false god, but he's a worshiper of the one true God. It doesn't violate the law of God, so he's able to accept that. Um, you know, as, as, we, as we dive into this, we, we understand that we obey laws and ordinances and edicts no matter how frustrating they may be, even how offensive they may be, as long as they do not violate the law of God. And Paul, he's underscoring this point in Romans 13. By the way, it's not just Paul who says this. You read 1 Peter. Peter says essentially the same thing. Um, But to resist authority is to resist those that God has appointed. Even if you don't like the authority, as long as he doesn't violate the law of God, he says, hey, you, you must obey or you receive condemnation. As you read that, you know, one of the things that you, you might be thinking is, well, it just depends on who the emperor is, you know? If it's Nero, I'm going to have a real hard time. But if, if, even if Rome had like a moral guy, he didn't have to be a believer, but if he's just moral, like that would be a whole lot easier to obey what he's saying. Well, Paul essentially addresses this back in Romans 1 and 2. Okay, in Romans 1... Uh, Paul's talking about how, how people are given over to this depraved mind and they exchange what is good for what is wrong and they call evil good, good evil. They practice all kinds of sexual immorality and all this kind of stuff. And what does Paul say? Those people will experience the wrath of God. Then you flip over to Romans 2 and Paul writes, hey, okay, so you're moral and you're trying to obey the law. But if you're only moral on the outside, and you have not been made alive on the inside, well, you stand condemned as well. That outward morality is not enough. And so, so Paul, what he's getting at is he's saying, hey, God is not in the business of making bad people good. He's in the business of making dead people alive. The, 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 the mission of the church is not to make bad people better. It's not to make people more moral. It's not even to make converts the mission of the church is to make disciples. And by the way, once you begin to make disciples, everything else falls in place. Because their worldview changes. How they live life, it changes. Everything falls into place when you, when you are uh, obedient to your primary mission of making disciples. And one of the ways that we expand our disciple-making influence is by being excellent citizens. And this is what Paul is writing about. You're going to overcome evil with good. You're going to be excellent citizens. And after this call to submit to governing authorities, Paul writes a little bit about how governing authorities are to govern. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because uh, the purpose this morning is not so much to look at the role of government, but to look how do we live in between God and Caesar. But Suffice it to say, what Paul says essentially is the role of government is twofold. One, to discourage evil, and two, to promote what is good, okay? That is essentially the role of government, to discourage evil and to promote what is good. And so, Paul's also going to write, he's going to talk about praying for your government and things like this, which we should be. We should be people who pray for our our leaders um, frequently and often, and as we pray, what are we praying Pray, God, would you, would you give us leaders who, who have sound judgment, who can rightly discern good from evil, right from wrong, and would you give them the courage to govern and lead accordingly, that they would discourage evil and they would promote good? I mean, this is what we're praying for. Pray for a government to discourage evil and promote good. Now, up to this point, as you look at the first five verses here, this is so hard. Right? This is, not, this is not easy. This is difficult stuff because it shifts us from an attitude of like wanting simply to complain or pointing out the ills and just oh, lamenting uh, the, the shortcomings of society to a people who pray and to a people who serve as a lighthouse and tell people where to go during the storms, cultural storms and the storms of life. And that's hard. But verse in, verses six and seven, that takes it up to even another level because now the focus shifts not merely to submitting to government, but to supporting government. Supporting government through the taxes that we pay, and through respecting and honoring those who are in these positions. So, it goes beyond uh, submitting to supporting, but that's, that's essentially it. How do you live between God and Caesar? You submit and you support. Now, one of the most unbelievable examples of this is also back in Babylon. Uh, Jeremiah 29.7, Jeremiah writes to the Israelites who have been exiled out of Israel into Babylon, and he writes and he tells them this, that you need to work for the good of the city to which you've been taken as exiles and pray for, for her prosperity. I mean, that just sounds wild to us, Right? I mean, can you, can you imagine just for a moment, like, hey, you know, I think mo- most of us are probably Americans here, and it's one of those things, like, hey, if we talk bad about America, if we complain about something, you know, we can, but if somebody else does, watch out, you know, it's kind of like your mom, you know. If I want to say something about my mom, one thing, but if somebody else says something about my mom, that's fighting words, you know. And so, you know, that's kind of our attitude sometimes, but just imagine for a moment, like, we want America to prosper, good, all those things, but imagine with me for a moment that we're not talking about America, but that China were to come in and just to invade America and rip families apart and all these things, and that you were to be taken as an exile, taken back into China. And then God gives the command, hey, here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to work for the good of China and pray for the prosperity of China. And you've just seen your country ripped apart, and your family's just been ripped apart. I mean, this is essentially what he's saying to the Israelites. You understand how hard this command is? I mean, it's extremely difficult. In the natural, it doesn't make sense, right? say, God, how could you give that kind of a command? I mean, I get support, but this seems like some kind of crazy level of support that doesn't even make sense. Like, how does that happen? How do you have that kind of a mindset? Well, it doesn't happen in the natural. It's living and seeing the world through the eyes of Christ. It's having the mindset of Christ. And the mindset of Christ is joy in all circumstances, joy in all circumstances. You know, it's the, it's the key part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's all one fruit, but a key part of that is joy, joy. Now, sometimes we miss it. And the reason why we miss it as believers, I think, is that we come to, to the Bible and we ask the wrong question first. That a lot of times the first question we ask when we open the scriptures and begin to read is, God, what do you want me to do? You know, what do you want me to do? Just tell me what to do. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to do it. Just tell me what to do and I'll try to do it. And then we come across commands like this. Like, hey, support a government like Babylon or like China or a government that promotes and celebrates transgenderism and, and abortion and things like this. You know, how, how, how can I support this? How can I work for the good of a government like this? And, so, and we struggle. And we read commands like, hey, uh, you know, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So, how, how am I gonna love them? I mean, I don't I don't have a lot of enemies, right? I've had like a few people in life who've been nasty to me. In the natural, my response isn't, Man, I love you. Thank you so much. You know, just, no, that, that's that's not in the natural. That's not my go-to, okay? So so how do you have this kind of a mindset? Let I me mean, to explain it, let me let me just put it to you this way. Steph and I, we've been married 17 years, okay? We love each other a lot. If you were to come up to me and you were to just ask me, Uh, hey, Steve, what is Steph's philosophy of life? Um, You know, I'd I'd probably kind of have to think for just a few moments, and I'd begin to articulate some type of a worldview. It probably wouldn't be super clear. It might not be all that concise. I might approximate something that she would say, but it might not be exactly. However, if this afternoon I go out to eat, and I'm eating at a restaurant, she's not there, and as I'm eating you know, what am I thinking? Oh, man, Steph would have loved this meal, right? I mean, this is her kind of food. She'd really love, love this. She'd be all over this, and then maybe there's a joke that's told or something, and I would think, huh, if Steph was here, she'd have a real witty remark right now, you know. She'd interject. It'd be a lot of fun. It'd be good, and or maybe I'd think, oh, man, it's a good thing she's not here. She'd been super offended by that. And it'd be written all over her face, and it might be a little awkward, so. Uh, but what's happening? It's not that, uh, I know her philosophy on life. It's just I can see the world through her eyes. You know what I mean? It's, it's Because it's birthed out of a relationship. It's, it's who we are. If, if the relationship was simply, okay, what do I have to do to be a good husband? Okay, if I do this, she'll be happy. If I don't do that, she won't be happy. Okay, what do I do? What do I do? Like, that's some weird type of relationship right there, right? What happens is I'm her husband right? Who I am informs what I do. The first question is not, what do I do? It's, okay, who is God? What does he do? Therefore, who has he made me to be? And that informs what I do. When we come to the scripture and the first thing we ask is, okay, God, just tell me what to do. What happens is you miss the relationship. And so then you're trying to live life in the natural, and God says something like this, like, okay, support government, and you think, God, how? I mean, I'll try, but I'm going to complain and be miserable the whole time I'm doing it because this seems ridiculous. That's how we see some of the commands of Scripture if we don't just see the world through the eyes of Christ. Right? Paul writes about having the mindset of Christ. Having the mindset of Christ is just being able to see the world through his eyes. And when you commune with Jesus daily, and you spend time in his word, and you pray to him, and you just get to know him, what begins to happen? It's not a rule book like, okay, God, what do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do? No, no. no. It's, I understand who I am. I'm a child of God. I'm a, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ here on earth, and so now I just see the world through his eyes, and so then when I reach a command like this, it just makes sense Why? Why does it make sense? And it does more than make sense. It becomes intrinsic to who I am. Why? Because I see the world how Jesus sees it. And how does Jesus see the world? He sees a creation that he formed and he called good and right. And then he sees a creation that he called good, marred and tarnished by the very creation he created. And then what does he do? For the joy set before him, he endures the cross. With joy, he endures the cross. And so now, in the here and now for me, what do I say? Ah, yes, there's human atrocities. Yes, there's this confusion of bad and good and right and wrong, and people are so confused. But you see the world through the eyes of Christ. You say, I'm a redemptive agent, an ambassador, sent to tell people where to go during the storm. This is who I am, and therefore what I do naturally follows. Do you understand the difference? And what happens is you do it all with joy, because Jesus had joy. And by the way, joy is not some like yellow smiley face that you just plaster on, and like, yeah, I'm happy, everything's great all the time, you know. No, no. that's not biblical joy. If you want to think of biblical joy, think of this, vitality, okay? Just a richness of the human experience. For instance, uh, Steph, we don't see a lot of movies, okay? I think maybe the last movie we saw was I Heard the Bells, was the story of uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Don't, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but uh, he had a very tragic life, really, okay? And if you're watching that movie, it would not be uncommon to just cry during that movie because of everything that he endured and everything that went on. And so you can imagine if, if you're exiting the theater and perhaps you're still crying just from the emotion of the movie. And someone were to come up to you and say, hey, how was that movie? And you say, oh, man, it was great. You know, it was so good. Like in the midst of tears, you're still crying. Oh, it was great. What are you saying? You say, no, I was just involved in it. Like the experience of it. I could, I could feel it. There was a richness to it. There's a vitality to it. And I'm understanding it through the eyes of Christ. Right? And so that's why Jesus, he has joy in all circumstances, even when he's weeping at the death of Lazarus, even when he's just furious because of the money changers and the people who have polluted the, the worship place for God's people. It's still joy. Why? Because there's he's always present in the moment. Do you see that? It's a richness of every moment in life. Conversely, you could leave here this afternoon and someone could ask you, hey, how was church? Say, oh, yeah, it was great. Oh, well, what'd you talk about? Well, um, I don't really know. Uh, you know, in my mind, I was kind of drifting a little bit. You know, I got this going on during the week, and so. Uh, but, but I know it was really good. Yeah, it was really good. It, what happened in that experience? They lost their joy, right? Because they missed the experience of the moment. They're living for future moments. And so in the present, they lose the joy, the richness of life, of the human experience. Sadly, there's a lot of people who attend church And you talk with them, and all they're doing is complaining, right? It's like, oh man, society these days, and culture, and all this, everything, all this, and these people, if they'd have just done that, it's complaint, 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 complaint. Why? All that evidence is a lack of relationship. Because when you have relationship with Jesus, it changes your mindset. It doesn't just change behavior. God's not in the business of behavior modification. He's in the business of making dead people alive. And so we have the mindset of Christ Jesus. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Justin the Martyr. Okay, Justin the Martyr, he was um, alive in the uh, second century. His, his time overlapped that of the, uh, the disciple John. And uh, he was a pagan philosopher in Rome, actually. And he's walking along the seashore one day, and some Christians come to him. And they begin to just share the gospel with Justin through Old Testament prophets. And so they go back to the Old Testament prophets and they show how these prophets pointed to Jesus and how Jesus was the Messiah. And then as, they're, as, as he's hearing this, it's all beginning to click and he becomes a believer, he becomes a Christian. He'll eventually be executed on the charges of atheism because he denied the Roman gods and only believed in the one true God. But before those charges came, before execution, before any of that, Uh, he wrote this uh, to the Roman government. and, And this is what he wrote. He said, Everywhere we, more readily than all men, endeavor to pay those appointed by you the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Jesus Christ. We worship only God, but in other things we will gladly serve you, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men, and praying that with your kingly power you will have sound judgment. Wow, you know what he's done right there? He's just summarized Romans 13. And I believe what he's done is this winsome witness for Jesus Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a quiet dignity with this great theology that recognizes God alone is sovereign. He's ordained, who is ordained? Why is he ordained these people? Sometimes we have no earthly idea, but he has a heavenly one. And his purpose is he knows what he is doing, and he is sovereign. And so we pledge allegiance to the divine emperor, to the government who rests upon his shoulders, because we are citizens of heaven, ambassadors here on earth. And we go and we tell people where to go during the storm Because we have the eyes of Christ. We have the mindset of Christ because we commune with him and we walk with him and he changes how we live and our perspective and how we live in the here and now. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are good. God, that you are the only one who is good. The only one who is righteous. You are the only righteous king, the only righteous ruler, the only righteous leader. And God, what a privilege it is to be a part of your kingdom. And now as we are sent here as your ambassadors, may we lead in such a way as to lift your name high. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.